Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Have you ever heard an atheist say, there's no evidence for God? What do you say to somebody who says that? There's no evidence for God, just a blanket assertion. We're going to cover that today. Also, what do you say to somebody who says this? In fact, this was a question that somebody emailed me. The question is, what do I say to people who say there are more than two genders because some people are born intersexed? What do you say to that? Another question. What evidence is there that the universe actually came from nothing? Finally, a question you emailed me is, uh, if the Bible says we should not kill, how can any, anyone justify war? We're going to try and deal with those questions today. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. And by the way, if you'd like to email us a question, the email address is hello at crossexamined.org. Hello at crossexamined.org. Uh, I've had guests on for the past several weeks, so I haven't been able to get to your questions. So today I'd like to do that. But I want to start with, there's no evidence for God. I was down at Impact 360 last week. Impact 360 is a wonderful ministry down south of Atlanta, about an hour and 15 minutes south of the Atlanta airport. And uh, it is a gap year program that about 60 or so students go to from September through May between their high school graduation and going to college. So they spend about a year down there getting apologetics, Christian worldview, philosophy, Bible, these kind of things uh, down there uh, south of Atlanta. Actually, it's Pine Mountain, Georgia. I go to the website, Impact 360, great organization. Anyway, I, I go there usually every December and uh, spend three days uh, teaching down there. And um, I brought up the, uh, the assertion, there's no evidence for God. And I, I, I asked the audience the question, well, let, be, before we talk about there's no evidence for God, why don't we ask this question? Is there evidence for anything? Or maybe better put, why is there evidence for anything? Not just God, but anything. Why is this a, a reality whereby we can get evidence for reliable cause and effect? You ever think about that? I mean, just, just leave God out of it for a second. I mean, presumably, presumably an atheist, when they say, well, there's no evidence for God, but they're going to say, well, there's evidence for, you know, evidence from science. We can get evidence that, uh, you know, evolution's true, say, or we can get evidence that, uh, there's a quantum vacuum out there, or we can get evidence that uh, the earth goes around uh, the sun, or we can get evidence that two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen will give you water. Okay. Well, what does all that imply? Whether or not any of those things are true, that's not my point. Uh, the, what does all that imply? All that implies is that this is an orderly universe, that the universe is rationally intelligible, that you have a mind that can discover truths external to itself, that somehow your three-pound brain can create a consciousness in you that allows you to figure out truths that are outside of your three-pound brain, that you actually have a mind, that you can reason 
to truth. That you can ascertain truths about the real world. By the way, this is called realism. That there's a real world out there and your mind can ascertain truths about the real world. Now, this makes sense on theism. Why? Well, because our minds are made then in the image of the great mind. And that this great mind has created and sustains a orderly universe. And our minds are directed to discover truths about this orderly universe. It makes no sense on atheism. Because, first of all, the universe is orderly. I mean, do you ever ask yourself, why is the universe so orderly? Why are the laws of nature so precise and consistent? In fact, we've talked about this several times on the program. And uh, I talk about it at length in the book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Paul Davies, an agnostic astronomer, famously in a New York Times editorial back in 2006, basically asked the question, why are there laws of nature? Why are they so orderly and, and precise? And of course, his atheistic colleagues were saying, Paul, don't ask that question. There's no answer to it from an atheistic perspective. Why, why, is, why is there a universe and why, why are there orderly natural laws, which we use, by the way, to do science? In fact, you couldn't do science if there wasn't an orderly universe, if there wasn't reliable cause and effect, if there weren't precise and consistent natural laws. Well, laws come from lawgivers, generally. Where, where do the ultimate laws that we use to discover cause and effect in the universe come from? This universe is orderly. John Lennox, who many of you know, we've had him on the program several times. By the way, I got to have Lennox back on for, he's got a book called Determined to Believe? Question mark. You know, it's this issue of, uh, of predestination free will, and he comes down on the free will side. I haven't read the book yet. I need to read it because Lennox is always very concise and a brilliant writer, brilliant mind. I want to have him on the, uh, on the, uh, show here again to talk about that. I think he's predestined to be on. Anyway, Lennox talks about having conversations with his atheistic colleagues out there at Oxford where he teaches, and he'll say to them, hey, you know, how do you do science? And normally the the, uh, atheist will say, well, you know, I got this big machine and this big laboratory, and John goes, no, 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 I don't mean how you do science in the lab. I mean, how do you do science up here? And he points to his head. And uh, the the scientist says something like, oh, you mean with my mind? He starts to say mind, and then he catches himself, and he says, you mean with my brain? And, and Lennox says, yes, with your brain. Where did your brain come from? And basically, the scientist says something like, well, my brain is the product of natural forces, random forces that had no end in mind. And then Lennox looks at him and says, and you trust it? I mean, why would you trust a, de- a device that wasn't designed? Why would you trust something that had no rational rationality behind it, that got here by some sort of random process. Why, why should your mind be able to discover evidence for anything, much less God? Well, it seems that the best explanation is that our mind is made with a purpose in mind. This universe is made with a purpose in mind, which means life has a purpose behind it. By the way, if you uh, have not signed up for our free email, we send out one email a week uh, with a short Q&A video. These videos come from our college campus events mostly, some church events as well. But I've noticed that if you send somebody a 40-minute video, they're not going to watch it. But if you send them a four-minute Q&A video, they will watch it. And so what we do is we film everything we do on a college campus 
uh, during the Q&A especially, and then we make short YouTube videos out of those Q&As. And sometimes we also film some Q&As just directly into the camera. And uh, if you want to get these, go to crossexamine.org, click on subscribe, and and put your email address in there, and we'll just send one one email a week to you with these short Q&A videos that you can share with others. We don't share your e email address with anyone else. Anyway, I, I sent one this past week that, that we did down at Right Now Media, where we just looked in the camera and made a point, and the point was this. Um, what can you learn about the purpose of life from, say, a football game? I mean, what is the purpose of a football game? Well, you might say it's for entertainment. And I don't mean that. I mean, if you're in the game, what's the purpose of the game or what's the goal of the game? Well, the goal is to score more points than the other team, quite obviously, right? Now, only if you know the goal, the purpose of the game, can you say that your quarterback throwing an interception is better than, or, or a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing an interception. The only way to ascertain whether a particular play is a good play or a bad play is if you know the purpose of the game. Well, the same thing is true with life, ladies and gentlemen. You can't discover the right way or wrong way to live life if there is no purpose to life. There has to be a purpose to life for you to discover, hey, here's a right way to live it or here's a wrong way to live it. If there's no purpose, there's no right way to live life. There are no good plays or bad plays, so to speak. Just like in football, if there's no purpose to football, there's no good play or bad play in football. Now, the same thing is true in life. Why do I bring this up? Because uh, we sent this video out, which I want you to see. But secondly, we're going to talk about it right after the break, because I just moderated a debate on morality between an atheist and a Christian. And I'll tell you who that is in just a minute. Don't go away. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in just two minutes. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Welcome back. Cross-examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end. dot org. And by the way, thank you out there for putting some positive reviews up on iTunes. I mentioned this uh, last week that I've been told by our social media team, led by the great Jorge Gill, that apparently the more ratings you have on iTunes, uh, the more your podcast moves up on the iTunes list, which means more people will see it or more people will hear it anyway. And so if you guys don't mind, if you don't mind going to the podcast, and there are two podcasts up there, uh, if you would, put a review uh, up on the one that has my picture on it. We're, we're the ones that control that and can put more uh, of a description of every podcast up there. The other one is put forth by our friends at the American Family Association, the folks that put this radio broadcast out. But we have more control over the other one, the one with my picture on it. We can put more descriptions up there. So if you would, I mean, you could put a review on both if you want to put, I mean, that, that won't hurt. Put them on both, but certainly put one on the, the, the picture, the one with the picture of me there. And I, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for putting some of these positive uh, reviews up there. Uh, one of the most recent ones from JB100 says, this podcast has given me multiple topics to explore. Quite exciting to me as a longtime Christian as my thoughts on certain topics are very more fully formed and mature. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, 
Real evidence says Frank gives me facts to defend my faith. Well, that's good. Uh, one, uh, this Easy Street Apologetic says, I love Frank's style of presentation. He really does a great job of being succinct yet thorough. His show is a great introduction to a case of and defense of the reasons to believe. I don't know if he coined the term or if it was C.S. Lewis, but it is an ultimate summary of Christianity and why it stands alone from all other world religions. Here it is. There is a stairway from heaven, not a stairway to heaven. Let's explore. Thanks, Frank and his crew. God bless uh, God bless us with your eternal wisdom. Well, that's it's going over the top there, uh, easy street, uh, but thank you so much. Uh, and no, I'm the reason I say there's a stairway from heaven, not a stairway to heaven, is because I grew up in the 70s with classic rock. And of course, at C.S. Lewis, uh, or C.S. Lewis uh, didn't say that because uh, C.S. Lewis wasn't around when Led Zeppelin wrote Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> so I just happened to think, you know, there's a stairway from heaven. Jesus comes down and saves us. We don't work our way to heaven. That's, uh, that's what all other world religions do, as you astutely point out. Uh, easy street apologetics in your review. So yes, it, it, there's a stairway from heaven, not a stairway to heaven. Every other world religion tries to, you have to work your way to God. In Christianity, uh, God works his way to you. He does all the work. In fact, yeah, you have only three options in life, ladies and gentlemen. You can run from God, like the younger brother in the prodigal son parable. You can work for God, like you're going to somehow put God in your debt, like the elder brother in the prodigal son parable, or you can rest in God, rest in what Christ has done for you. Now, once you rest in, what I, what I mean by rest, I mean, you, you mean you realize that God does all the work, that, that God saves us. We don't save ourselves. Now, out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we will work and do good works out of gratitude for what he's done for us, out of love for him and love for our fellow man. But the work doesn't save us. We rest in. By the way, that is why, and I'm getting off the topic here. I apologize, but I just have to say this. That is why the Sabbath is no longer obligatory. Out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them repeated in the New Testament. The only one that isn't is keep holy the Sabbath. Why? Because what did the Sabbath represent? Rest. Well, the rest has arrived. Who is the rest? Jesus is our rest. Now, this, this has nothing to do with, gee, it's not a good idea to take a day off or or concentrate on the Lord more so on one day than the other. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's not obligatory because the Sabbath has arrived. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. So you can run from God, you can work for God, and somehow think you that God owes you then, or you can rest in God. Those are your three choices. The first two don't work out. Only resting in God works out. There's a stairway from heaven and he provides it. Anyway, sorry to get off the topic. Just to reiterate, please go to iTunes and put a very positive review up there. That would be very helpful because it will help us get this podcast to more and more people, which is what we want to do. So let me mention, as I mentioned before the break, that the uh, I, I just moderated a debate on Thursday night at my alma mater, Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu between Dr. Richard Howe, the Christian longtime friend of mine, and also a professor at SES, and the very delightful, let me say this, the very delightful Michael Ruse, who is now my favorite new atheist, or my favorite atheist. He's not a new atheist, but he's my favorite atheist because he is just a scream, and he's so good-natured, and uh, just just a wonderful, I had dinner with him the other night, and uh, 
And during the debate, I hope you can see the debate. I thought it was streaming live. I can't find it on the internet. I'm, I'm reaching out to my friends at SES to, to, to tell me where it is. I, I, I thought it was on Facebook. I didn't see it, but it's going to be posted at some point. And the debate between uh, Dr. Howe and Dr. Ruse was the question, can there be good without God? Not can you be good without God, but can there be good without God? What is the ontological status of goodness? Where, where does goodness come from? Not, not, you know, not can you do good works. That's not the question. Not can you know good. That's not the question. But why is there such a thing as good ontologically? Why, why is there such a thing as good? And so this was a delightful debate. It actually was more of a discussion. We didn't have, it wasn't dueling speeches or any of that. We just started off by saying, hey, Dr. Ruse, what do you think? Hey, uh, Richard, what do you think? And then they just had a conversation and I interjected every, every once in a while. And it was hard for me because I want to debate, but, I, but I'm, I'm not there to debate. I'm there to moderate. But Michael Ruse is just a delightful gentleman. And so we had, we had a fun time. And when you see the debate, you'll see what I mean. I mean, he is kind of the atheist version of John Lennox. In fact, John Lennox just had a, a discussion with Michael Ruse. I know you can see this on Justin Brierley's Unbelievable show uh, called The Big Conversation. Just Google that. You'll find it. Uh, between Michael Ruse and John Lennox, and they, they, they too are very delightful English gentlemen that, uh, that you'll enjoy listening to. In any event, the real issue was over objective moral values and ob obligations. Do they exist? Now, they both agreed that these things exist. The only question is, how do you count for them? The problem, I think, for Dr. Ruse is that he insisted that objective morality is just an illusion given to us by evolution. But if this is true, there's a universal problem that affects far more than our thoughts about morality. I mean, if it's true that we, we get our moral sentiments, that there are objective moral values from some sort of evolutionary process, then, then they're not really objective. They're kind of false beliefs given to us by evolution. And, and Dr. Howe brought this up, by the way. I'm not going to go through the whole debate with you. But, but, but secondly, if you think about this, evolution is not prescriptive. Evolution is descriptive. Evolution just describes what happened. It doesn't prescribe what ought to happen. So a biological process can't give you an a, a, uh, objective moral ought. Biology doesn't have the authority, in other words, to tell you what you have to do. So the argument doesn't work anyway, but I, I, I want to relate to a deeper point here. If our thoughts about morality are given to us by some sort of evolutionary process, then how can we say, or, or, or how can we deny that all of our thoughts come from some sort of biological process, some sort of evolutionary process? I mean, if evolution gives us our moral thoughts, then how can we say that evolution doesn't give us every thought, including the thought? That objective morality is just an illusion given to us by evolution. In other words, this seems like the universal acid. It's like what we've talked about many times on this show. It's, it's, it's sort of almost like a materialistic view. And Dr. Ruse is not a materialist. He says, look, I'm not a materialist. I'm a panpsychist or something. I don't know what I am. But he says, I, I don't think it's true that, that just everything's made of molecules. He's wise enough to understand that there's something metaphysical out there, something beyond the physical. But he's having trouble, and I think if when you watch the debate, you'll, he even admits this, he, he basically says, well, I don't know what, what grounds all this. He's having trouble grounding his beliefs. Because if they are given to us by evolution, first of all, they're not objective. They're false beliefs. And you might ask yourself, too, now that I'm thinking about it, if, if 
evolution gives us our thoughts. Why did evolution give Michael Ruse the idea that um, these thoughts are just illusory, but he gave Dr. Richard Howe the idea that these thoughts or these moral obligations are not illusory, that they're actually real. So why would the same natural process come to two different, give us two different outcomes is what I'm trying to say here. Maybe there's a way of explaining that naturally, I, I guess, but it, it just seems like a question that needs to be answered. Also, it's a, it's a universal asset here. Ruse is not a materialist, but he, he, he had a lot of trouble arriving at a foundation for his beliefs. And here's a brilliant point that Dr. Howe made the other night at the debate. He said, this is a process of reverse engineering. What, what do we mean by reverse engineering? Well, you know, you say you, 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 uh, you find an iPhone and you want to figure out, well, how did they build the iPhone? I've got this iPhone here in front of me. Um, you might take it apart if you're a scientist or an engineer of some kind and say, you know, well, how did they do? What circuitry is this? How did they put this thing together? How does this thing work? So you've got this iPhone in front of you and you take it apart and try and arrive at how this thing got to you. Who built it? Why is it here? That's a reverse engineering issue. In other words, you're reasoning from effect to cause. You start with observations. An iPhone exists. So how did it get here? Who put it together? How did they do it? Now, let's apply that to reality, just general reality. I have this observation that certain things exist. For example, I observe that I'm finite or contingent. So there must be something necessary, something non-contingent out there if I reason back far enough. I observe that I'm composed. I'm put together by another. So there must be something out there non-composed, something self-existing, not put together by another. I mean, if I go far enough back, if I reverse engineer a composed thing, somehow that composed thing must be put together at some point by something that isn't composed. Ultimately, I observe that nature is orderly and consistently going in a direction. That I've got these precise and consistent natural laws. And, and these things are going in a direction as are unconscious living things like acorns. Acorns always become oak trees if properly nourished. They never become an, a, a, a birch tree or an elm tree or a seahorse. They always become an oak tree. Now, this is an unconscious living thing. Why does it always go in that same direction? Well, if you reason back far enough, you're going to end with an external mind directing these things to an end. I observe that I can observe that we talked about this earlier on the show, that my mind is directed to understand external reality. Well, if you reason back far enough, you're going to get back to an, an uncreated mind that may be created and sustained external reality. I also intuit that I have objective moral obligations. And what we were doing the other night at the debate, we were trying to reason, okay, I got these objective moral obligations. How do I explain them? Let me reverse engineer this and figure out where they came from. We'll talk more about that right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. Don't go away. We're back in two minutes. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. 
0% go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. So I was moderating this debate, as I mentioned, between Dr. Michael Ruse, a delightful gentleman who's an atheist. Really, he claims to be more of an agnostic. He's an atheist that Jesus is the son of God, he says, uh, and an atheist on maybe the book of Genesis. But he, he said there could be a God. So anyway, he was, he was debating my friend, Dr. Richard Howe, and um, Richard made the point that Look, we both agree on objective moral obligations. You say they're illusory. I, th I think they're real. And we're both trying to reason back. We're both trying to reverse engineer the idea um, as, as to where these come from, these objective moral obligations. And if you look at someone like Aquinas, who uh, Richard Howe follows, um, he will reason back. He'll try and reverse engineer. I've got these objective moral obligations. I'm going to arrive ultimately at a being like God. And the same issues I brought up before the break, that I'm finite, there's got to be something that's not finite. I'm composed, there's got to be something that's not composed. Uh, there's direction in nature, there's got to be a director ultimately. Um, these kind of things, if you unpack them long enough, if you reverse engineer them long enough, you're going to arrive at a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent being whose every attribute is, is infinite. Now, it takes a lot of psych, uh, I should say, a lot of uh, philosophical reasoning to get to that point. And that's where you could rely on a more popular level book uh, for this, like our friend Ed Fazer's book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. Some of them are arguments from Aquinas, other than from Augustine and others. Anyway, these are philosophical arguments that reverse engineer reality and you arrive at a being that looks suspiciously like the God of the Bible. Now you don't get all the way to the God of the Bible with these because these arguments say nothing about Jesus. You know, we don't have any historical evidence when you're just looking at these arguments, you have to go to history to discover if Jesus truly was who he said he was. Then you can say, ah, the God that the arguments of Aquinas and Augustine and others, these philosophical arguments, actually are arguments that also uh, show that the God of the Bible exists because now we can see that Jesus did rise from the dead. So the very, the very being that Augustine Aquinas and others have identified is the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible. No argument gets you all the way there, but when you combine all the arguments, you get a being like this. Now, given these effects, and let's just take moral obligations for one. Given these, given these effects, what is the cause of them? Well, the debate basically said, let's reason from effect to cause. Philosophy is reasoning from effect to cause. It's reverse engineering what we know that actually exists. Now, Dr. Ruse was not willing to go to God. He just wasn't willing to go there. But I asked him at, at one point in the debate, I said, is it possible that Dr. Howe is right? That his reasoning will bring you back to God. And he Ruse admitted, yeah, okay, he could be right, but he just wasn't willing to go there. And so much as this is about willingness. I did ask Dr. Ruse if Christianity were true. I asked him this one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and I don't think he would mind sharing it. If it were true, would you become a Christian? He said, of course. I mean, he's, he's got a Quaker background, you know. 
Uh, so, yes, he, he would. And he's just a delightful gentleman. I really enjoyed hanging out with him and having him in this debate. So hopefully that's going to be online soon and you can see it. Um, but Dr. Howe believes that it's inevitable that reason will take you back to a being with God's attributes. And by the way, this is what the early scientists believed. In fact, John Ray, one of the founders of biology, back in 1691, wrote this book. Listen to the title of this book, looking at, the bio, or looking at biological things. This is the title, The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation, 1691. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, as, as one of the scientists said, we are, th we are thinking God's thoughts after him by, by looking at nature. We are reasoning from effect nature back to the cause. And, and that's what science does. Science starts with a, a, a effect, and it reasons back to cause. Philosophy starts with an effect, reasons back to a cause. And I've said a hundred times in this program, you can't do science without philosophy. Philosophy is done in, or I should say, science is more done in the mind than it is in the lab. Why? Because you have to interpret the data. You have to gather the data and interpret it. That's all done in the mind. It's not done in the lab. In any event. Um, the point here is, is that there is evidence for God if you're open to it, um, because this is a rational world and you can reason from effect back to cause. So when someone says, well, there's no evidence for God, first question you want to ask is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by evidence? And secondly, why is there evidence for anything? This is a reasonable world. And if you look at just what's around you, you start with what's around you, that things exist, being exists. If you, if you reason far enough, you're going to wind up back to a being like God. Now, I've got this issue of gender that I want to deal with, too. I don't know if we can get through all this. There's a lot here. I may have to save this for a future broadcast. So let me deal with the other two issues, and maybe we'll come back to the gender issue. Um, what evidence is there that the universe came from nothing? That's a question that uh, was brought up uh, by one of you, or actually two or three of you have emailed me that question at hello at crossexamine.org. What evidence that the universe came from nothing? Well, there's a couple of reasons uh, we know that, and when we say nothing, we're not using it in the Lawrence Krauss way where he says, well, nothing is actually something. It's a quantum vacuum. No, the quantum vacuum had a beginning too. We mean non-being, nothing there. Aristotle had a good de definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing. I mean, if I say I had nothing for lunch today, that doesn't mean that I had something called nothing. It means I didn't eat lunch today. Nothing, non-being. Now, what evidence is the universe came from nothing? Meaning no space, no matter, no time. And the evidence, as we've gone through before, uh, there's several lines of evidence. One is, of course, the second law of thermodynamics says that everything's running down, that, that nature had a beginning because if everything's running down, if we're running out of usable energy, if the universe was eternal, then uh, we'd have run out of energy already, but we still have energy. So there must've been a beginning to this universe, a beginning to the space time continuum. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can think of the universe as uh, having batteries. Like say, say, for example, you took a flashlight, you turned a flashlight on in your bedroom 
and you left your bedroom and the next day you came back into the, or you turn it on in the morning, you came back at night. I mean, what's going to be the strength of the beam coming out of the flashlight that, that night? Well, it's going to be weaker. Maybe it's dead, right? If the batteries have run out, you have no beam, no light beam coming out. Well, you can think of the universe as having uh, batteries. Like if I turned the flashlight on an infinitely long time ago, if you could, would there be any light coming out of it now? No. Why? You would have used up all the energy. Well, same thing is true about our universe. Think of the universe as having batteries. If, if the universe began an infinitely long time ago, there would be no juice in the batteries right now. There'd be no energy left. The sun would have burned out a long time ago. All scientists know that the sun's going to burn out one day. All the stars are going to burn out. We're going to go to heat death. Well, since we're not at heat death right now, since the sun is still burning, it must have had a beginning. And it had a beginning, actually, out of nothing. Now, we go through the other evidence that the universe had a beginning. Uh, SURGE is the acronym we use in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Second Law of Thermodynamics, the fact that the universe is expanding, the radiation afterglow from the initial Big Bang explosion, the, uh, the uh, smoking gun to the Big Bang, if you will. The G is the great galaxy seeds that allowed the galaxies to form in the early universe according to the, the model of the universe where the galaxies form at, at later times. And then the E in SURGE stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. And what Einstein found was that space, matter, and time are co-relative, that they came into existence together. Well, if space, matter, and time are co-relative, that would mean that what we know as the universe, space, time, and matter, had a beginning, because this is what the theory of general relativity shows, it had a beginning, and if it had a beginning, whatever created space, time, and matter must transcend space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, at least. Also personal, to choose to create. Powerful, to create the universe out of nothing. Intelligent as well, because, again, to be personal, to choose to create, you got to have a mind to do so. So, just from the what we call the cosmological argument, the spaceless, timeless, immaterial universe, or I should say, the universe came from a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being. We, we get that from just the cosmological argument. That space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, non-being. Now, you might say, well, how do we know it's nothing, non-being? Well, all we can say is if space, time, and matter had a beginning, what, what we mean by nothing is nothing spatial, temporal, or material. We're not saying that God doesn't exist, that that's nothing. We're saying nothing in the physical sense, in the temporal sense, in the material sense. So it would seem that the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial to bring space, time, and matter into existence. And by the way, there's a, there's a, a philosophical argument for the beginning of the universe, and the beginning of time as well, it goes like this. If there were an infinite number of days before today, then today never would have arrived because you'd always have to live another day before you got to today. But since today is here, there must only be a finite number of days before today. Well, if there's a finite number of days before today, that means time had a beginning. And if space, time, and matter are co-relative, that means space and matter along with time had a beginning. It's a, it's a fabric, as Einstein found. Space, time is a fabric. Well, space-time and matter had a beginning, then whatever created again space-time and matter 
was spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent. So philosophical evidence shows that the universe came from nothing spatial, temporal, or material. Scientific evidence shows that the universe came out of something that's not spatial, not temporal, or not material. So that's what we mean by nothing. We don't mean nothing in the sense that there's no God. We mean nothing in the sense that there's, there's no space, time, or matter. So all the evidence at this point shows that. And even if the scientific evidence is overturned somehow, the philosophical evidence doesn't appear like it can be overturned. That seems like an unassailable argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, that there can't be an infinite number of days before today. So at some point, whatever created time, um, or at some point time had a beginning, which means whatever created time must transcend time, must be timeless, which means when you ask the question, who made God, it makes no sense. Because if you're timeless, you don't have a beginning. God created time, which means he's outside of time, which means he didn't have a beginning. He's the eternal, necessary being. We don't get this by assertion. We get this by looking at the evidence. All right. We got more after the break. Don't go away. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. And by the way, Merry Christmas. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Speaking of a beginning to the universe out of nothing, you realize that until about, I say, 100 or so years ago, by the way, by the way you're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk and the American Family Radio Network. By the way, until about 100 years ago, most scientists thought the universe was eternal. In fact, Aristotle thought the universe was eternal. Philosopher, you know, 2,400 years ago, thought the universe was eternal. The Bible always said, however, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning the universe. The Bible had it right. And now it's only in the past century or so we've discovered scientifically and philosophically that, you know, the Bible's been right all along. Genesis has been right all along. In fact, in several places, the scriptures actually say that time had a beginning. And this has always been the, the straightforward teaching of the scriptures. And it's only science that has caught up recently. So, yes, there's very strong evidence that the universe came into existence out of nothing, non-being. No space, no matter, no time. Now, we're saying that a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator must have existed to bring it into existence. But there was nothing spatial, temporal, or physical about the being that brought the universe into existence. Okay, the other question that we wanted to get to was, if the Bible says we should not kill, how can anyone, anyone justify war? I had a couple of questions on that. And by the way, you want to send in a question? Hello at crossexamine.org. I apologize in advance if I can't get to all these questions or I can't get them in a timely manner, because quite frequently we have guests, but I'll, I'll do my best to get to them uh, when we have a show like this where it's just me and I can answer these questions. Um, well, I think the reason that there can be such a thing as a just war is that the Bible does not say thou shall not kill. It says thou shall not murder. There's a difference. There's a difference between killing in a just war or killing in self-defense and murder. Murder is the taking of an innocent human being. Whereas um, maybe killing in just defense, the person isn't innocent. The person is trying to kill you and you have a right to defend yourself. 
or there is a situation where there's a just war, war is the least worst option at that point. You're trying to recreate peace by going to war. And we can talk about the principles of just war theory, not today, but we can at a future time. In fact, I have a, actually have an article on the website. I think I wrote it about 10 years ago. It was during the Iran-Iraq war. I think it's still on our website. And uh, the title of it is Jesus and the Case for War. Jesus and the Case for War. See what you think about it up there. Maybe you might disagree with me, but uh, by the way, I, when you read it, you're going to see, I'm not saying that all war is justified. I'm not, but I'm saying there are periods when war might be justified. And that's what the, the article is about Jesus in the case for war. So just go to our website there and uh, the blog crossexamined.org. And by the way, if you haven't downloaded the crossexamined app, 177 plus thousand people have, why haven't you? It's free. You can access it on that as well. You can also access this podcast, our TV show, which is on every um, every Wednesday night. I think right now we're about to air, maybe we already are airing my debate with Michael Shermer. Um, and uh, we're also going to air here either later this month or early in January, uh, the two programs we did with the Israeli archaeologist Eli Shukran, uh, which you're going to enjoy quite frequently because Eli's discovered most of the city of David. In fact, we had Eli on the uh, podcast here about a month or so ago. Go back and check that out. Uh, and, uh, that's all going to air on our TV show, DirecTV Channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku, R-O-K-U. It's NRB TV on Roku. And if you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping the uh, the United States right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of the Internet? Yeah, it's on there. <laughs> it's on there. Gee, I'm snorting now. It's on there on the Internet at our website, crossexamine.org, uh, 9 p.m. on Wednesday night. 1 a.m. Thursday morning, four hours later, you get the idea. Uh, so if you're on the West Coast, it would be a 10 p.m. Pacific, 7, what would that be? 6 p.m. And, and 10 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, for I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So check all that out. So the, the again, the direct answer to your question is not all killing is murder. Sometimes killing is, is unfortunately necessary. Uh, so if you're in the military, uh, then... Don't feel bad you're in the military. In fact, the military is actually is actually seen as necessary. If you read Romans 13, when Paul talks about uh, the very first couple of verses of Romans 13, where Paul talks about the ruler, he says, the ruler does not bear the sword for nothing. What's the sword? Meaning power, military power, police power. His job, every Every uh, government's legitimate role is to protect its, its citizens from evil. It protects its citizens from evil inside the country through police. It protects its people from evil outside the country through armies, through navies, through air force, through the Marines, you know, these kinds of forces. And that is a legitimate and necessary reason to have government. In fact, it was... Uh, it was James Madison who said something so profound about this. He said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Think about that, friends. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. You need a government because we're not angels. We're bent toward evil. We're bent toward evil. And if there isn't restraint of evil through government or through, better yet, through the conscience, the moral law written on our hearts, then there's going to be trouble. There's going to be people that are going to get hurt. This is why George Washington famously said that religion 
and morality are indispensable supports for a government. James, um, uh, James, uh, or John Adams said, our constitution, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, uh, Bill Federer has all these quotes memorized. I'm, I'm close to memorizing this one. Uh, but the John Adams said, our government or our constitution is made for only a holy, religious, and moral people. It is inadequate for the government of anyone else. And we see this when people ignore the law, particularly courts ignore the law. They make up the law. Judicial activism. They decide what the law will be. And we don't care what the people passed. We don't care what the Congress said. We don't care what was passed. We're just going to tell you what we think the law should be, and we're going to ignore the Constitution in doing so. See, that's the Constitution can't survive when people do that. When justices take it amongst themselves to write their own laws. So, going back to the point again, I'm digressing, but going back to the point, the point here is, is that the Bible says that we shall not murder. It doesn't say we shall not kill. There are just situations or there are periods when you need force. Force is the least worse choice. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said something like, in a fallen world, sometimes some measure of force will be necessary. And if you don't think so, just imagine your town, if the police in your town one day said, hey, tomorrow, we're not going to prosecute any crimes. You can do whatever you want. You got 24 hours, do whatever you want. Would your Best Buy survive? Would your Lexus dealer survive? Would, would any store not be looted? I mean, come on. No, we're, we're bent toward evil and we need restraint. The best restraint is internal from conscience or from 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 yielding to God's Holy Spirit. That's the best. That's why when you snuff out religion, you make government grow because government then, then turns into the nanny state because people don't restrain themselves. In any event, I'm, I'm preaching now. I'm sorry. Um, so, no, we're bent toward evil and we need restraint. And sometimes force is necessary. Let me deal with the question at a future program because I've got three minutes left here. The question uh, what do I say to people who say there are more than two genders because some people are born intersexed? I'll get to that at a future program uh, because I have a long answer to that. But let me also point out to you that and I, I, I hardly ever mention this. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, I, I hardly ever mention that we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And if you just know us by the radio broadcast or the podcast, that's a very small amount of what we do. Uh, we go primarily to colleges, high schools, and churches and try and present evidence through our I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist program that Christianity is true. Because 75% of young people, friends, you know, go to college, walk away from the faith once they go to college. And many of them are already checked out when they're in high school. Their parents just don't know it. Their parents force them to go to church, but they're already, already mentally checked out. So we go to high schools and colleges and churches to present evidence that Christianity is true. And we do this through donations, primarily the college and the, and the high school campus. We don't charge students a dime when we go there. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, we were just up at the University of Maryland in October, October 23rd. And um, we presented, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We had about like 220 kids in there, I think, from college students. I didn't know this until recently, uh, but uh, Larry, the, uh, the crew leader up there um, said, you know, we took a survey after that and eight people came to Christ during that. Now, now this 
uh, to my knowledge, doesn't happen a lot, but I wouldn't know because we never take surveys. Larry took a survey <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, eight people came to Christ. After that, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation. Now, by the way, it's, 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 we're, we're normally not given invitations, come down the aisle, that kind of thing. I normally tell people at the end, you got a choice to make here. And then I take questions. But people actually came to faith. And typically our goal is, look, just to encourage the Christians, put a stone in the shoe of the skeptics, get them thinking, have them take a step further toward Christ. I don't always expect that people are going to come all the way to Christ during one of these presentations. But sometimes it happens. And maybe it happens more than I know, because I say we don't take surveys. But Larry did, thankfully. So we're making a difference on college campus. And the only way we can do it, and on a high school campus as well, the only way we can do it is through you. Because 93% of everything we do is funded by donations. About 7% comes from online courses that we sell or products that we sell, but 93% comes from donations. And 100% of your donations, ladies and gentlemen, goes to ministry. 0% goes to buildings. 0%. In fact, out of our five full-time employees and six or seven part-time employees, we don't even live in the same town. We all work out of our homes. I'm doing this podcast right now, this radio program from my home. Why? Because we don't think your money that you give us should go to pay for some office somewhere. We think your money should go to ministry. And so that's what we, that's, that's, that's what we do. We work out of our homes with all the technology today. We don't need to be in the same place. We're not even in the same city. We have people in other countries working with us. Why? Because that's the best use of the ministry dollars you give us. So we go to colleges, churches, we do seminars, we do cross-examine instructor academy. We got all sorts of video up there on YouTube and Facebook. We have an app. We do TV, radio, the web, online courses, study material, all that. And we need your help to do it. So at the end of the year, if you would help us, that would be great. Go to crossexamine.org and give us a tax-deductible donation. And I'll see you next week, friends. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type Cross-Examined Official Podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.